I want to say on behalf of my fellow praise team members how thankful we are to serve you in this way. I, I hate to tattle, but if you noticed anything, I think, this is my first time ever seeing with Tracy, I think she may have missed a few notes. <laughs> and that caused me to miss a few, so if you, if you noticed anything, I just wanted to clear it up, I don't know. Let me open us in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege we have to be your children, to be the recipients of your unfathomable love. May we all have a sense of it here this morning, please, even as I speak now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, as we've already mentioned, we've made a last second change. Um, Steve is stuck in Chicago, coming back from Ukraine, and uh, we're just going to hopefully move him to next week and let him share what he had planned to share. And I, when I got his message last night that he wasn't going to make it back, I started scrambling in my mind thinking, what do I talk about? And I've decided for once to be relevant. And so I'm going to talk about the big news this week for just a minute. So uh, on Friday we found out that the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. I didn't know that I would ever live uh, to see this occasion, honestly. Although, as you know, um, I mean, most of you know this about, about me. I'm an independent uh, politically, and I don't trust myself to political parties. I trust myself to Jesus, and uh, I don't uh, direct my life around what any political party tells me to think. Uh, and I try to be very fair, and I hope you know that about me now. Um, but I am very pro-life, and I want to tell you a little bit more about what that means today, uh, uh, and maybe challenge us to think about what it might mean for, for all of us here. Um, the question I want to start with, and you're just going to have to bear with me because I've scribbled down some notes just this morning in between praise team practice and leading a class. So uh, just uh, be patient with me. Um, why is it that human lives matter so much? And that's what I want to start by thinking about with you. Why is it that, that we... Uh, so firmly insist on all human lives having such great value? And that's a, such an important question for us to think about as, um, as, we're, oh, as we're, as a society thinking about these issues, as we're a church thinking about these issues. It's a way for us to, to really engage this issue theologically, Thinking about God, thinking the way God thinks about things. And really, this is, this is what this question is about. It's, it's about the value of human life. It's about uh, what is a person. So years ago, I was in a, uh, it's a biochemistry lab or something like that in, in college. And there was a guy in there with me. And he was going off on this, this issue, and he's, he was very pro-choice. And he said, that's a woman's body, and I don't care 
what anybody says, that's a woman's body and you can't interfere with that, whatever. And I just asked him a simple question. And uh, I don't remember my exact words. I either asked him, do you believe that the thing in her body, do you believe that the baby is a person? Or do you believe it's alive? One or the other. I I hope I said person because that's the more accurate question. So I'll, I'll just go with that. I said, do you think that that baby is a person? And he said, Oh, I don't know, man. That's a tough question. Those are, those are hard questions to answer, things like that. Now, you see, can't we at least start with the idea that we know you don't kill people? <laughs> That's something we should agree on. You don't kill people. So really, the fundamental question is, is that a person? And there's broad agreement on the idea that you don't kill people. So you answer that question, and you've got, you've got it answered. And if you're going to say, oh, I'm not sure, I'm going to say, how about we don't kill it until we're sure? <laughs> so so that's, a, that's a starting point for me. Let, but I want to take you to the, the differences that we might have in how we approach what makes human beings human. And this gets down to the core of, of, our, of, of believing in God, of a theistic vision of the world. Listen, this is what one atheist scientist has written about, about how we're here. We are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because comets struck the earth and wiped out dinosaurs, thereby giving mammals a chance not otherwise available. So thank your lucky stars in a literal sense. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age. Because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exist. This explanation, though superficially troubling, is not terrifying it is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. Is that exhilarating? To believe there were some collisions that happened in the world and randomly, by chance, over billions of years, you ended up here on the earth? Is that liberating and exhilarating to believe that? According to Dr. Gould, it is. You see, he he thinks it's true. My question is, how do you ground value in a human being if that's your understanding? Right? We don't put that same kind of value in rocks that are here by the same exact process, according to, to Gould. What is it that gives human beings such value? How do you ground human rights? This is a discussion that everybody has to have. In, in whether you're talking about legal, political world, whatever. How do you ground human rights? Once you've said everything's an accident, what is the, the logical basis for saying there are, there are human beings that we must respect and treat with dignity? It's a very difficult question to answer once you've abandoned God. You see, what, what 
Christians believe, what theists believe, well, no, what, what Christians believe, the Judeo-Christian world believes, is that human beings have value because we are made in the image of God. You remember when we talked about Genesis back several months ago, and we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, and this is crazy idea. We weren't just randomly spit out in the universe. We weren't just made as slaves or, or as animals or given a certain function in the world, but we were made in the image of God. And so every human being has an incredible value just because God has said, you will bear my image in the world. Nobody gets to destroy that. And this is why it's wrong to murder. It's not wrong to murder just because somehow out of the sky we decided, well, that's not nice. That's the most non-nice thing you can do, so don't do it. It's wrong to murder because there's a God who made human beings and said they carry an intrinsic value that nothing else in the world carries. So you do not kill it. This is why human beings have rights, fundamental rights that should be guaranteed to them because God. And outside that, it becomes very, very difficult to justify any of the rules we put in place to protect life and to protect more generally human, human rights. This image of God grounds us in our thinking about life in the womb. And here's the, here's the issue, if I can be just a little bit philosophical with you for just a minute. Basically what you're dealing with uh, when it comes to understanding a person, most people agree, although some people argue this, most people agree that you should not kill a person. And so if you, if you acknowledge that it is a person in the womb, you shouldn't kill it. So you get different theories of personhood. And it's been, a, it's been a long, I tried to review briefly this morning, but it's been a long time since I've, I've studied these things. But what you have is what's called a functionalist view of the person that undergirds uh, people who support abortions. Um, it's, it's the view of the person that says, we identify you as a person because of your function, because of certain capacities that you can realize. So rational cognitive faculties, for example, they'll argue. It, once you're able to reason in a certain way or to a certain level, then we recognize you as a person. Uh, once you're able to be conscious, once you're able to communicate in a social setting, things like that, this, this functionalist view of a person. Now, you see, one of the significant problems with that is that you don't just apply, you can't just apply that to, to persons in the womb or non-persons. It becomes uh, applicable to those outside the womb. So what about those who are born mentally handicapped or with Down syndrome? Or what about elderly people who begin to lose all cognitive function? Then suddenly, are they no longer persons? See, they're non-functional in the way we've defined function. And this is why some people do support, uh, whether you call it uh, eugenics or infanticide, things like that, killing off those who don't function at a certain level. But most people don't want to go there. Most people don't want to say, yeah, you can just kill the old people once they don't think that well. I mean, some of you might be on the list. <laughs> now, most of, you, most of you haven't quite gotten there yet, all right? But you see, this is the question. What kind of, how do we even know how to define what functions make someone a person? If you function this well, well, maybe if it's this well, you're a person. Well, you can kill everybody beneath that. No, you can't do that. But you see, there's one, uh, at least one, I'm sure there are others, but a, an atheist philosopher at, at Princeton named Peter Singer. Uh, 
You may have heard his name, well-known guy. He has argued that if you can kill these babies in the womb because they have Down syndrome, you can kill them outside the womb because they have Down syndrome. I think he's in favor of it. Um, that's the functionalist view of a person. You say, well, it's not really a person. You see, that's not what we believe as Christians. We have what we could call an essentialist view of the person. That is the essence Placed in us by God is what makes us a person. In essence, you are an image bearer of God. It doesn't matter if you're born with Down syndrome. It doesn't matter if your cognitive capacities severely decline in old age. You still bear the image of God. And the image bearers may not be snuffed out. They may not be thrown away. Do you understand that? I know we're dealing with some deep stuff here, but... Uh, uh, I'm trying to explain the, the different ways of approaching this. This is why uh, I am, and I think most of you, would be opposed to killing babies in the womb. Because you know God, and you know what God has done with people. And you know God has stamped his image on people in an essential way. Not in a functionalist way. But essentially, human beings bear the image of God. And so we don't kill them. And so we're thankful when laws are passed that try to reduce and eliminate the killing of people. Right? I'm just thinking about what I should say next. <laughs> I want to just say something here. This is a little bit of Christian apologetics, and I'm just uh, taking a minute to say some things that may be helpful to you overall. It may seem a little bit scattered, but one of the issues you run into here is that our society is sort of uh, gotten drunk on science. And I'm a fan of science, and I believe it's of God, so don't get me wrong here. I'm so thankful for all that science brings to the table and that it has uh, eliminated so many harms and wrongs and has advanced so many good causes. But we've accredited to science an ability to speak in areas where it's really not qualified to speak because it's done so much good and we've seen so much value and advancement because of it. Then our society has looked at science and said, well, it can explain everything. And if science doesn't support it, then it, it must be wrong, or if we can't explain it. So people do this kind of thing with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We know it's not true because science, <laughs> as if science has disproven that people can rise from the dead. As if, as N.T. Wright has said, in the ancient world, they didn't know that dead people stay dead. <laughs> so there are a bunch, of, a bunch of silly people running around uh, th- thinking, oh, well, that can happen. <laughs> no, they knew dead people stayed dead. And they knew Jesus came back alive. But in our world, people say, well, science, science means... I mean, I, I was talking to a guy years ago. He was uh, another lab partner when I was in a science field at, at Louisiana Tech. And he's a really smart guy. And we got into a discussion, and I presented to him resur- evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I bet a good, solid evidence. And I said, you know, how do you explain that? And uh, he said, I don't know. Son of God? Like it was a, like it was a slur, you know? <laughs> And he said to me, all I know is science. And that's not science. Now you see, I wasn't uh, as informed back then as I am now. Because what I would have pointed out to him had I known to do so is that uh, he's actually making a a self-defeating argument when he says that. Because science itself cannot explain knowledge. 
Science cannot prove to you that all your knowledge comes from science. How would you ever go about doing that? How does science prove that all knowledge comes from science? I mean, this is deep stuff here. These are, uh, this is called the field of epistemology in philosophy. Um, and uh, uh, science cannot explain all kinds. We all believe in things that science can't explain. Love is one of them. Science cannot explain love. It can give you maybe certain chemical functions that take place in the brain when people are experiencing something that we call love, but it cannot explain the, the spiritual and the psychological thing we call love. We believe in things that science can explain. Um, this is relevant when we talk about abortion because uh, people like to act like science uh, can answer all these questions. And really what we're dealing with with personhood is we're dealing with philosophical questions and uh, related theological questions. Science cannot explain personhood. It's not meant to answer those kind of questions. Okay, I know that's deep, and I'm getting some looks out there like this is not going that well. So let's just move on and look at the Bible. And uh, sometime I'll come back when I've had more time to prepare how to say that better, and we'll talk more about it. If you want to talk to me about it afterwards, uh, come and talk to me afterwards, okay? I want to look at just... uh, Jesus here for just a minute, and um, let's, let's close up and go to lunch early, okay? In Mark chapter 3, Jesus encounters a man with a withered hand, a hand he couldn't use. And Jesus intentionally causes a problem. I don't know if you know that about Jesus, but he was a problem causer. And he did it on purpose because he meant to shake people up. People think Jesus is always so meek and mild, just wanted everybody to be okay with everybody. No, that's not exactly right. He wanted people to be kind and peacemakers, but he knew sometimes he needed to to stir things up. And so that's what he did. This guy has a withered hand. Jesus could have taken him outside and said, hey, come over here, buddy. I'm going to heal you. He didn't. What he did is he called him into the middle of the, the synagogue so that everybody would watch on the Sabbath. Now, this is something very interesting. The synagogue ruler in in Luke chapter 14 or so, you can read about this. The synagogue ruler makes a very reasonable objection to Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. He said, there are six days a week when you can get healed. There's no need to do it on the Sabbath. Jesus knew what he was doing. That's a very good argument, except for Jesus wanted to mess with them. He wanted to say, you're messed up about the Sabbath. And you're messed up about what the Son of Man has come to do. You're messed up about God's highest priorities. And so he was always healing on the Sabbath and doing other things to intentionally upset people in order to draw them to what's true and beautiful. So in, in, in chapter 3 of Mark, Jesus, uh, verses 1 through 5, uh, they were watching Jesus to heal him, on, to see whether he's going to heal this guy on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And so what Jesus did was he said, since they're watching me, let me call you out in the middle here. <laughs> rather than taking him somewhere. Calls him out into the middle so that they'll see. He says, my translation says, come here, but really in the Greek it's literally, come into the middle. Come out here where everybody can see. And he said to them, okay, he looks around at these people who are watching, and he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill. But they were silent. 
And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Now just just stop right there and, and notice what it was that grieved Jesus. It was their hardness of heart. He was angered and grieved at their hardness of heart. He was angry and grieved because they should have been able to see this. And they couldn't. Why couldn't they see that of course the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who gave them the Sabbath as a gift so that they could could rest and heal and be well, why couldn't they see that this God would want a wounded person to receive healing on the Sabbath? He's grieved by what they're unable to see, by what they're unable to think. That's having a hard heart. The heart in the Scriptures refers both to an emotional feeling center, but also to a thought center. They all go together in the Hebrew mind. And it's a hard heart that can't think and feel the right kind of things. And I have to tell you today, as I've listened to some of the responses after the overturning of this law this last week, I have been, in a way, I've felt what Jesus had felt. I've anger and, and grief at the hardness of people's hearts. At, at some of the people with the moral outrage they seem to have on the other side, that, that a law could be passed to protect the, the lives of babies. As if somehow there's a moral high ground for, uh, for killing babies. I know they wouldn't put it that way. But it, it's stunning to me. I think Jesus is feeling this when he, when he looks, at the, looks at these people around him and says, What? You're God's people? And yet, you think you're on a moral high ground for not healing? For telling somebody to stay with his withered hand? Think about the hardness of heart, the failure to see clearly. I have seen that today. It makes me wonder about how far as a society we can become blind. How much darkness can envelop us so that we don't see clearly. And our hearts are hardened to the good things of God. Jesus came so that he could write his law on our hearts. That means we come to think clearly and we come to feel rightly. And we come to value the things of God. You see, we can't just stop in triumph because an abortion law was changed if we're going to have the heart of Jesus. We have to have his heart for all those who are hurting for all those who are suffering injustice and oppression. For the hungry across the world. For the little babies now that are going to be born. Who will need to be adopted. And how many Christians have, have signed their name on to the political cause. Wondering one day if, if we could get Roe v. Wade over, overturned. How great. What are we going to do for those children? There need, I tell you, I've believed this for a long time. There needs to be an uprising among the people of God to adopt children. 
And I say this as, as one we've tried to adopt. It's fallen through. Um, but Olivia and I tried very hard to adopt at one point in our life just because we believe in this. So I'm not just preaching to you uh, about this. I, I believe Christian parents should look around them and say, how can we go help the children? See, we cannot be triumphalist politically. Oh, our party won. Like I said, I'm not in a party, so I'm not like that. But I see that sometimes. Yes, we signed our name on. We won the political battle. Great. No, we care about people. And the same reason why we're thankful that God has seen fit to finally get rid of, of what Josh called in his prayer a wicked law. I agree. For that same reason, because God has dignified every human being, because God has put his image right on the very soul of human beings, we are for human rights. We are against racism. We are for helping the poor. I don't have, you know, policies are tricky on this, okay? I don't have all the answers on, on the best ways to do it. But we as Christians need to be sold out to these kind of things. The church needs to be known as a place that's looking out for the least of these. Let me just read you one passage from Deuteronomy that uh, also touches on the, the hardness of heart issue. Where is Deuteronomy? Okay, here we go. You know, there's more, more scriptures in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of, of the Old Testament, uh, than anything else, or, or more uh, identification of sin against the poor than anything else besides the sin of idolatry. So there's idolatry, and number two is teaching about what we do with the poor. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart. Or shut your hand against the, your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. And you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your poor brother, to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. This is the law of God. Do not harden your hearts to the poor to the weak, to the outcast, to the unborn. We thank God that hopefully now more little children's lives are going to be saved. Let's thank God also that the church may, by God's grace, come awake and see itself more passionate than ever before in helping the little ones who are born into this world and receiving them and blessing them and helping the little ones who are already out there the hungry, the impoverished, those who are experiencing racism and other injustices. The church is called to be the people of Christ. Jesus was always seeing people that other people didn't see. 
And that's who we're following. I mean, that beautiful scene where he's talking to the Samaritan woman. And it's funny because the Bible says, that, if I remember it right, the disciples come up and they're surprised that he's talking to a woman. <laughs> because that wasn't supposed to happen. Right? Because the, the status differential there. But also, it's a Samaritan woman. And have you ever just wondered how long it had been since someone had noticed that woman? And here she is, finding herself talking to the Messiah, wondering about it, and saying, yeah, I know the Messiah is going to come. And he says, yeah, I'm he. And she drops her water bucket <laughs> and runs back to town because this guy who noticed her was actually the Messiah. The blind see, the lame walk, the poor have good news proclaimed to them. That's what Jesus said to go tell John the Baptist when he was looking for the Messiah. And that's what the church should be today. A place where healing and help are found for the least and the last. And we thank God that he's called us into that. Don't let your heart be hard. Many times in the past, the church has had a hard heart in various ways. May we soften our hearts today before the Lord Jesus. Praise team, part of you are already up here. <laughs> Come on up and let's sing. <clears throat>